Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Chocolate and cookies is proving to be quite the combo this week. We're dusting off our aprons to review a new-to-us alternative flour cookie paired with chocolate, of course. And we'll also be introducing a milk chocolate pot if you prefer your sweet stuff on the lighter side. And since we know you want your kitchen to be a place of respite, calm, and peace, we're doing a brief reminder of Kitchen Safety 101. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, you are aware of my latest obsession with cardamom, correct? Oh, yes. But this is not a new obsession, really. I mean, this has kind of been an ongoing spice obsession, hasn't it? This has been an ongoing spice obsession, but I've always used cardamom in savory cooking. It's only fairly recently that I've started using it in sweet goods. Oh, I have mentioned a couple of times how many of our recipes I've tossed it into. Of course, you gave me permission to do it in the pear pie last month. (laughs) I like how you keep saying, like, I've I've waved the white flag and I've said yes to cardamom. (laughs) Yes, you may. I've, like, anointed the cardamom. I don't know, the royal blessing or something. (laughs) Well, I know that you like to follow the rules, and generally that gets you very good results. So, yeah. I could see why you might occasionally be like, you know, Andrea, can you just stick to the recipe for once? I also feel some pride because cardamom is very, very popular here in England. And I feel like just kind of using that spice in the baked goods is something I've been doing more naturally as well. So I'm, I'm really happy that it's kind of rubbed off too. Well, in our Facebook group, I had posted a link to a cookbook I just found called The Cardamom Trail. And a couple yeah. of our listeners had great experience with it. So I'm on hold for that at the library. And then one of our listeners, Maggie, recently posted a banana cardamom upside down cake. It was one layer. It had all my favorite ingredients. You can bet I made it pretty fast. (laughs) So I made it on a Friday morning. I served it that evening. It went back into the fridge that night. And then we ate it again some more on Saturday morning. Mm. It was equally good on both days. Yeah. Nice, light, very good. Once again, good old King Arthur flour comes through with a very reliable recipe. And Maggie, thank you so much for sharing it with us. And I give points to any cake that tastes just as good at dessert as it does in the morning, right? Yes. (laughs) Which is most cakes for me, but yeah. (laughs) Yes. Well, speaking of cakes and other sweets, we know that this week, of course, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. We would be remiss if we didn't give you a few options for that holiday if you're looking for something to whip up. Yes. From our back catalog of course most recently we had those delightful spinach lemon donuts from episode 107 and they were so cheerful and green and even when we made them we said you know what this is going to be a perfect St. Patty's dessert yeah I think that would be a really fun way to start the day if you have kids way back in episode 19 and we've talked about this one several times over the intervening years it was our bread and butter pudding with salted caramel whiskey sauce and that came from an Irish chef actually Cloda McKenna 
that was one heck of a rich and tasty dessert. Really buttery, really just, I mean, caramel whiskey butter says it all, doesn't it? It really does. I think that's one you might want to save. That's not a breakfast dessert in my mind. <laughs> I would save save that one for the special evening. <laughs> I often make soda bread, and one episode, in fact, that you might just want to listen back to previously on Preheated, (laughs) episode 103. (laughs) It was our Cherry Bounce episode, but I did a Globetrotting Gourmet segment about going to Ireland, and we talk a lot about the foods that I ate there, the ice cream, and then the show sheets for that episode have some links to a treacle stout bread and a beer bread as well. So take take a listen back to that one just to get in the spirit. Yeah, that's a great idea. I really enjoyed hearing your report from that particular trip. And I did not expect to hear about ice cream in your visit to Ireland. So that was kind of a fun, fun surprise. Right. And we're laughing about the phrase previously on preheated. But we've added a new section on our show sheets that's called Previously on Preheated. So you can quickly take a look back at what we were talking about not only one year ago, but two years ago also. And it's really fun for Andrea and I to compile that back catalog. But also, a lot of times things are seasonally lining up, what have you. So you can you can kind of click through and see what we were talking about at this time last year. Stefan, this week's Bake Along was the salted chocolate rye cookies. This came from Chef Chad Robertson, and the cookbook was Tartine. Deeply chocolatey with crackly tops. They used a new flour that I think both you and I had never used before. They used a rye flour. Yeah. And some bittersweet chocolate, some butter, baking powder, salt, some eggs, some muscovado sugar, and some vanilla. So some pretty simple ingredients, but as you mentioned last week, some really good quantities, a full pound of that bittersweet chocolate. What kind of chocolate did you end up using? I did use the green and blacks. It was 450 grams, and that's an organic dark chocolate. It was a 70%, so that was the cacao content. Oh, listen to me in my technical language. Just rolls right off your tongue. Thank you. That was the percentage called for, so I felt great about using it. I've used green and blacks. It's a nice organic option, Mm -hmm. so I think that worked very well. Well, I wasn't able to find Valrona 70%, but I was able to get 85% and 45%. So doing a little math here, I decided if you added those two together, that came up to 130. And if you divided it by two, that was a 65%. Pretty good. I decided I would just use half and half. So I used half a pound of the 85%, half a pound of the 45% to kind of make my own bittersweet mixture. Yeah, excellent. And the other ingredient here that was new to us, Andrea, was the dark rye flour. Now, I didn't necessarily have a problem finding this at my Whole Foods, but it was just called wholemeal rye. And that's the only one that was available. I'm not sure how that might differ from a dark rye flour. It didn't necessarily look very dark to me, but I'm not sure what a light rye might have looked like. What did you do there, Andrea? Yeah, same thing for me. I found mine at my co-op, but it was just called rye flour. It didn't say whole grain. It didn't say dark. Yeah. And it was a pale color. Okay. You know, kind of like a whole wheat flour color, a little bit lighter even than that. Sounds like what I used then too. So as far as I'm concerned, it it worked very well in this recipe and I thought it did the did the trick. So if there's listeners out there who do know maybe what the darker, I'm assuming maybe just has a more robust flavor, um, I'd be interested to know. Well, Stefan, now that we've got the ingredients down, why don't you tell us about your experience baking this 
particular recipe. I loved these. (laughs) I loved these so much. And you had mentioned last episode in episode 114, you said, I think these are going to be like a brownie cookie. Yeah. And I would take it one step further and say, I think these are like a truffle cookie. Yes. They are so very rich, so super chocolatey. I mean, as you just said, they have a pound of chocolate. Actually, not that much butter, but I guess you're getting a lot of the the cocoa fat from the, the chocolate itself. Right. And then just a lot of really rich flavors. I'm assuming that rye flour has some nice, more of a robust taste than just a plain all-purpose flour would, obviously. Yeah. And then you have that really nice dark molasses flavor from the Muscovado sugar and a healthy amount of the vanilla as well. So many great flavors going in to make a really dense and thick cookie. Yeah, it's kind of hard, hard to go wrong when you've got ingredients like this, I think. Yeah, agree. I thought everything came together very well. You're melting down your chocolate and your butter there, putting the rest of your ingredients together. You are whipping your eggs, uh, I think, for some leavening action, although there is some leavening in this recipe as well. And that's four eggs, so so some more richness there. Now, Andrea, you had kind of cautioned that although you're chilling this dough, they suggest about 30 minutes. And you even said last episode, don't put this in the fridge overnight. And that's a really good thing to call out because I ended up having to chill my dough for almost five hours. It's just kind of how my day went and I was able to put the ingredients together but couldn't get back to baking them off until later in the day. And the consistency at that point was so thick I couldn't even get my cookie scoop through it. You know my like it looks like a little ice cream scoop. I think I I just call it a cookie scoop. It was just just hardened back up. Oh okay. So had to sit it on the counter for, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour until that was more workable. Okay. I don't think it made any difference in the end. I just am calling that out. If you do put it in for longer than the 30 minutes, if you do put it in overnight, have to come back to it. Just be prepared to maybe let it warm back up a bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. I did mine for the 30 minutes and it was soft and loose, just as they said when I put it in and when it came out, it was a good scooping consistency. Yeah, and you don't want to skip the chill because, as they say, soft and loose, I thought it was almost like brownie batter. It was so loose. Yeah. You, could have, you could have poured it into a cake tin at that point and baked it off. So you're definitely looking for it to firm up a bit, just maybe not as much as, as I did. Yeah. But how much fun was it to turn your mixer on high and whip the eggs until they tripled in volume about six minutes? <laughs> so much fun. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I warned my daughter when it started. I was like, hey, I'm going to be making some noise for a few minutes. And, you know, after about three or four minutes, she was like, still? <laughs> and I said, yep. Yeah. It's still going still on. Still going. This reminds me, I think there's one other recipe I made one time. It might have been Dory Greenspan. It was one of those, like, change your life brownies. And it was a whip for 10 minutes. And, yeah, I just think that's, okay. you know, one of those things where you just completely change the amount of volume and air in something. And so it really did make these cookies, they were dense yet light. And and that's the only way I can think of it kind of explaining what I think having these eggs so highly whipped did. I agree. I think, too, though, that in the final instruction there, it says to bake for 8 to 10 minutes until the cookies have completely puffed up. I wouldn't say my puff they did get a smooth bottom which was the next thing to look for and they were rounded although I had done a pretty thorough job of rolling them in my hand before I put them on the cookie sheet would you say yours were very puffy um I would say they puff nicely yes 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. So maybe this was an issue with my chilling too. Maybe had I had it a little bit warmer batter, it would have been able to puff a little more. I had no problem with that texture at all. They were divine. Now, did you get the crackly tops that they mentioned? I did. Yes. Yeah. I wanted a little bit more cracking, but I didn't want to overbake them. I didn't have as many cracks as I would have normally liked, but I was still pretty happy with them. I think the thing that surprised me most about these is that my kids didn't like them. Well, you are not alone. My child did not like these either. Aha! (laughs) I think these fall more into the sophisticated cookie category that we've talked about before. Yes. I think even for kids who like chocolate, this really dark chocolate is a little bit too much for their palates. And then I think with that rye flour as well, it's just so rich. Yes. It's a bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I would be very eager to try this and back off on that cacao percentage. What do you think about that? Maybe not down to the 45, but maybe more like a 55, 60? Well, mine was 65 if I did my math correctly. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And it was still pretty chocolatey, but of course I like that. I mean, it certainly wouldn't hurt to try. It would be interesting to see if maybe that rye flour flavor comes through a little bit more if you back off on the cacao percentage. That's a good point. I think it's a good recipe to play around with. As long as you use good quality chocolate, I think you're going to be okay. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with having your list of adults-only cookies because sometimes you just need a batch for yourself, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, I have no problem with my daughter saying, oh, this isn't my favorite. I'm like, okay, more for me, not a problem. Yep. (laughs) I got out my cookie jar and it was just loaded and I really love them. I do think they were delicious with some milk. Now, Andrea, did you try them with coffee or any kind of beverage? I don't recall having them with a beverage. I think I had one or two when they came out to taste them. And then I put them in the fridge. I know you're – it never suggests that. But I don't know. Ever Hmm. since I made those flourless fudge cookies from King Arthur and I loved them straight from the fridge, I've been popping my cookies into the fridge and I'm really liking that. You and your cold cookies, me and my cold cakes, (laughs) I mean. (laughs) I know. I guess so. Yeah. So I just really enjoyed it that way. And I don't think mine lasted three days. So no, that was really good. Yeah, I loved these. Really did. And this week, our bake along is maybe something that the kids will be a little bit more inspired by. And that is some milk chocolate pots with a citrus shortbread. It's from BBC Good Food. And I have to tell you, Andrea, when this popped up in our list of recipes for this month, I just thought, This pretty much encapsulates it for me as far as an Andrea recipe. Yeah. It has this citrus shortbread. You have kind of gone through almost a citrus, well, citrus obsession for sure ongoing. But that shortbread too, you have experimented with shortbread since our Earl Grey shortbread uh, last season. And this recipe, of course, it's four steps. It's really straightforward, really foolproof, but I think is going to result in a really nice, sophisticated dessert. So tell us a little bit more about the milk chocolate pots. Yeah, I saw this recipe and, you know, my husband, he does not love chocolate, but if he's going to eat chocolate, he usually prefers the milk chocolate. Yeah. That was one of the first things that grabbed me about this recipe. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the citrus shortbread, I just thought, well, this just has everything I like coming together in one recipe. So for the chocolate pots, you're going to use some good quality milk chocolate. And I saw at my grocery store some from a local chocolatier brand called Dilettante. Said so that's what I'm planning sure. on using. Nice. Stefan, I don't think you have any trouble getting milk chocolate, correct? No, this will be no problem for me. Milk chocolate's very prevalent here. Right. 
If you're somewhere where your chocolate isn't labeled as milk chocolate, you're looking for something with a cacao percentage around, I would say, the top 45%. And, you know, you could certainly go a little bit lower. Okay. Then you're also using a double cream and some large egg yolks for the chocolate pots. Now, remind me, double cream in the UK is called what in the US? Heavy cream. Heavy cream. Okay. That's right. Yes. Great. This particular recipe, you're just going to heat the cream and then pour it over the chocolate and then beat in the egg yolks. I personally am going to be very careful there because I'm always nervous about potentially scrambling eggs. Totally. Yep. Saw that too. Stefan, I think you noticed that it then mentions to tip this mixture into a jug. (laughs) Tip the mixture into a jug. I just don't get it. Is is jug just like a British recipe thing? Because the other one with the jug was the chilled chocolate souffle. They were all about the jug as well. I don't know, but that would be in the first instruction. That would be like over eight pots. I mean, you've got the chocolate in a bowl. You've got the cream in a saucepan. You're mixing that together. You're pouring it into this unknown jug for some reason. And then you're pouring it into the individual pots. So I don't know. I'm going to get you a jug that says preheated on the side. (laughs) I think I have a saucepan that has a little pour spout on it. So I... That's what I'm going to do. So when it says put the chocolate in a heat-proof bowl, I'm going to put mine into a large Pyrex with a spout so that I can skip the jug. Yeah, I have a, I have like a four-cup Pyrex. Yeah. I do have my little individual ramekins, so I'm going to go ahead and use those. Those are always fun to use. And you are going to put this in the fridge to set it for at least two hours, so make sure you plan a little time ahead. Your second instructions are going to be making the shortbread, and this is very similar to other shortbreads that we've made. You're going to be using your flour, orange zest, butter, and some sugar, and egg yolk. I got so confused when I was reading the instructions because I forgot you call cookies biscuits, and so it said, add the sugar and egg yolk, mix gently, and bring the biscuit dough together with your hands. And I thought, why am I suddenly using biscuit dough? What? It says to roll it out until one centimeter thick and then transfer it to a baking sheet and uh, let it rest a little bit in the fridge. Mm -hmm. Heat the oven to 160 degrees Celsius. Do you know what that is for our U.S. listeners? It's low. It's going to be like a 325, maybe even a 300. I will confirm that in the show sheets, though. Okay. And then you're baking it for 23 to 25 minutes. I love the way this is cut. The recipe actually has it cutting into little rectangular size biscuits or cookies. So I'm excited about that. It looks really cute. And it looks like it's a small, somewhat of a small recipe. I mean, it's not a a huge amount of shortbread is my impression. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing it serves four since they're having you split that into four ramekins, but it doesn't have a serving size actually. So if you love it and want it just all for yourself, then permission granted. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it says to cut them into eight two centimeter biscuits. So I'm imagining that means every person gets one chocolate pot and two pieces of shortbread. Then when you are ready to eat, you're using some more cream and this time it's calling for whipping cream so that's different than the double cream called for earlier Mm -hmm. but can I use the same for both I'm going to it's very rare to see a whipping cream actually called out like that okay I would use whatever you would normally use as a whipping cream which again could be your heavy heavier double cream yeah yeah that's what I was just thinking about buying a larger size container of the heavy cream and then using it both to make the chocolate pot and to top the chocolate pot 
That's the recipe. You're going to whip the cream up to soft peaks, spoon it on top of your chocolate pots, serve it with the shortbreads on the side. I am very excited about this particular recipe. So I hope all of you will bake along with us and post your photos like you like to do. Just one note on the ingredients, Andrea, that you are using a self-rising flour or self-raising as we say in the UK. So just make sure you've got some of that. And that's just flour that has the leavening already added. It's super popular in British baked goods. I'm glad you called that out because I don't have any of that, but I know I've seen an easy way to turn all-purpose flour into self-raising flour just by adding a little bit of, is it baking powder or baking soda? That's a really good question. It's one of those. (laughs) It is. It is one of, yes, it's one of those. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it has the leavening already added. Now, Andrea, are you able to find golden castor sugar? Castor sugar is what would be like a granulated sugar in the States, but here they also have a golden that's almost a little toastier. Is that something that you can find or will you just be using regular sugar there? I've taken my granulated sugar and during pie month, I used it to blind bake. So I'm going to be using that. I call that toasted sugar and that's what I'm going to be using. I was hoping you were going to do that. Yay! That's what I was going to suggest if you couldn't actually find the product perfect. Yeah, I think that'll work out really well. I don't think I've ever seen golden castor sugar in my grocery stores. Yeah, that's a product that I learned about and have used since I've been here. But they do use it a lot. I think it just, like you say with the toasted, I think it just has a little bit more flavor. Yeah. And then just finally, you're going to have three egg whites left over at the end of this recipe. So this would be a great opportunity to try those flourless chocolate cookies from King Arthur Flour that you loved and are in the show notes as well for a previous episode. So those use egg whites. That's true. Yeah, so let us know if you're baking these milk chocolate pots and what you also are doing with your egg whites. Well, remember, we will have a link to all of those recipes. That was the salted chocolate rye cookies from Tartine. And our milk chocolate pots with citrus shortbread from BBC Good Food is our bake-along this week. We'll put those in the show notes for this episode. And today's episode is episode 115. And that will be on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook group. Stefan, back in episode 104, when we were reviewing our homemade Irish cream, you told the story about your blender exploding. And though we had a few laughs about it at the time, it was a sobering experience that led us to create this segment, Kitchen Safety 101. That's right. Have you ever had a frightening kitchen incident like mine, Andrea? Only a small fire, which I set when I was a young girl. I was Mm. trying to roast marshmallows over our electric range. And when the marshmallow melted, it dropped onto the burner and immediately caught fire, whereupon I promptly tried to put it out with a kitchen towel. Oh, no, I'm guessing that didn't work so well. (laughs) No, it did not. Fortunately, a friend was with me. She grabbed the towel, she threw it in the sink and turned the water on. But I still recall as it was happening that feeling of panic and just that sense that like I, I had to do something immediately and I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, it's definitely a scary feeling. And for me, setting aside the ruined appliance from the shower of sparks to the haze of smoke hanging in the air... It was incredibly lucky that neither I nor my kitchen was hurt. As the famous saying goes, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Okay, so let's get down to that planning. First up, there are a few steps to take before you even start cooking. Perhaps the most crucial one being to pay attention. And believe me, I understand the irony of me being the one to say this. (laughs) 
Is your counter covered with stuff that could topple onto your burners? Is there a puddle of water on the floor? Is something smoking mysteriously now that you've turned your oven on to preheat or plugged your blender in? Slow down. Take a look. Don't ignore these things. Do some things preventatively to avoid a potential disaster. Right. And take a look at yourself, too. Tie your hair back. Get rid of any long or dangling jewelry. Roll up your sleeves. There's a reason professional chefs always look so sleek and put together. It's not just for style, it's for safety. Yes, those bell and bow cuffs on your sleeves may look good in photos, but not in the (laughs) kitchen. Also, where you keep your equipment is important. Keep your knives in a knife block or on a magnetic strip and keep them out of the reach of children. And never grab for a knife that's falling. Just let it fall or you may risk grabbing the blade and slicing your hand or your fingers. Keep potholders nearby and use them. Don't grab something else to help in a pinch or worse, try to grab a hot pan with bare hands. Keep any loose towels or aprons away from open flames and or your burners or electric coils. I still remember my friend Emily catching a potholder on fire in 7th grade home ec. Like your friend Andrea, she had the forethought to throw it in the sink and turn the taps on, so crisis averted. But I've never looked at one since without thinking of that event. It's also good practice to turn your pot handles away from the edge of the stove and push cooling items well back onto the counter. Also, wipe up any spills immediately, especially grease. Slips can cause serious injuries or burns. Be sure to turn off burners and ovens when you're done cooking and never leave something unattended on the cooktop or leave the house while you have something baking. You know, that is the hardest rule for me to follow. I'm I'm such a distracted cook. I always think I can leave the room super quickly and return right back. And that has been the cause of many boiled over pots or singed items. I have made myself a new rule, and I've been good about following it, that I am not allowed to leave the kitchen when the broiler is on. Oh, that's probably a good idea. Another oven tip, don't use it as storage. It's so easy to forget something is in there and turn the oven on to preheat without checking inside. Don't I know it? I was letting some bread rise recently in my oven and I made this exact same mistake. I had to throw away the bread and the bowl. It was a total mess. Ugh. And be sure your smoke detectors are in working order. Here in London, my smoke detectors are wired into the house, but in Seattle, I check the batteries when we change our clocks in the spring and the fall. Always pull your appliances, like toasters or toaster ovens, out from under your cabinets when you're using them. And don't try to repair an appliance yourself unless you are a professional electrician. We'll never know what happened with Stefan's blender, but suffice it to say, some kind of wiring malfunction happened without warning. If you're given a warning, take it and replace your appliance. I also keep a first aid kit in my kitchen and make sure it's up to date. I like to check mine once a year and restock it as necessary. You can find many ready-made kits on Amazon, and you can take basic first aid courses through the Red Cross or local hospitals or fire stations in many cases. According to the London Fire Brigade, 60% of fires start in the kitchen. In the case of a small flare-up, if you can do so safely, turn the heat source off. Keep the oven door closed and turn that burner off. And if you don't already have one, push pause on this podcast and go get a kitchen fire extinguisher and learn how to use it. In an emergency, you won't have time to read the directions or look for it. That's right. 
And a good all-around extinguisher costs about $40, and it has ABC on the side. It can extinguish fires ranging from wood and paper to chemicals to energized electrical sources. Many can be serviced every year or every few years, so you don't have to replace the entire canister. You may also want to invest in a fire blanket, which you can throw over an active fire to smother it. And if the worst happens and your clothes catch fire, remember, stop, drop, and roll. Where you keep your extinguisher matters too. It won't help you much if it's on the top floor of your house when your dinner catches fire on the bottom. So keep it within a few steps of your cooking area. And of course, you always want to get yourself and everyone else out of the house and call 911 in the U.S., 999 in England, or your own country's specific emergency number if you have a situation beyond your control. So we hope our short safety segment helps make your time in the kitchen not only enjoyable, but as safe as possible. Both the London Fire Brigade and the American Red Cross have great resources we'll link to in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 115. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the icing on to this episode. Every Monday morning, we release new episodes, and next week, we'll see if we want to share any of our milk chocolate pots with citrus shortbread, or if we plan on keeping them all to ourselves. If you're finding the variety of natural and alternative sweeteners available these days to be a bit complex, don't worry, because the preheated gals have got you covered. And we'll introduce a chocolate babka, which may take an international flight to handle. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening, and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.